Climate One Conversations feature oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats. I'm Greg Dalton. These days, Republicans and Democrats don't agree on much. But as more and more lawmakers are coming to realize, no matter which part of the country they represent, their communities are facing catastrophic change due to global warming. If you're along the coast, rising sea levels. If you're in the Midwest, the land that you can grow on has shrunk. Your crop season has shrunk. If you're in Oregon, in, in Northern California, the wildfires, and on and on and on. That's Ryan Costello, former Republican congressman from Pennsylvania. He now manages Americans for Carbon Dividends, an advocacy group that is supported by oil companies and promotes a price on carbon emissions. Oil companies backing a climate plan, with relatively small amounts of money this time, not just words, shows that the politics of climate are shifting on the right. Christine Pelosi, executive committee woman of the Democratic National Committee, says she sees the divide as more regional than partisan. What we need to do regionally and within industrial and indigenous communities in particular is have that basic dialogue where someone is saying, your industry is poisoning my water. And the other person says, okay, but I need a job. What job am I going to get if I'm not in the industry that happens to have runoffs that poison your water? Many Republicans fear that voicing support of climate solutions could torpedo their chances for re-election. Carlos Curbelo is a Republican who co-founded the Bipartisan Climate Solutions Caucus in Congress and represented the southern tip of Florida until he lost in 2018. He says it's time to put country ahead of career. Yeah, perhaps leading on climate uh, could make some Republicans vulnerable in a primary. Perhaps negotiating with Republicans could make some Democrats vulnerable in a primary. Too bad. That's what you signed up for and we need you to do your job. On today's program, I'll talk with Carlos Curbelo, Christine Pelosi, and Ryan Costello about the politics of climate, the ways that each party sees it differently, and where, believe it or not, they come together. We'll also discuss proposed solutions coming from both sides of the aisle and how climate change will figure into the 2020 election. Curbelo begins by telling us that, for the South Florida community that first elected him to Congress in 2015, the issue is very close to home. A lot of people ask me, what, what got you into climate policy, environmental policy? And I think a lot of times they, uh, they're expecting to hear some dramatic story or maybe that I had a dream or something. And, and that's not at all what happened. I just realized, I learned about the issue and I realized that this is a local challenge for my community. Of course, it's a global challenge, but uh, in my community, uh, an area uh, that is uh, at about sea level and where most people live near the sea, uh, the threat is real. It's imminent. Uh, we get tidal flooding. Uh, our drinking water supply is threatened by uh, saltwater intrusion. So that's why I decided to get involved. And uh, in 2015, when I got to Congress with Ryan, uh, there were maybe three or four Republicans in the House who were even willing to acknowledge uh, climate change, this reality that we're facing. And uh, having a lot of one-on-one one -on -one conversations and starting the Bipartisan Climate Solutions Caucus, which was the first uh, of its kind, an effort to establish a dialogue and then cooperation between Republicans and Democrats in Congress, we really started changing things. So I, I think uh, we bottomed out, at least uh, uh, when it comes to Congress in 2014-15. I think things are headed in the right direction now. Uh, we just need to accelerate the process because time is running out. 
Christine Pelosi, we also heard that it, it's local. It's not top of mind for a lot of voters. You know, it's a local issue, but local people can't solve the problem. And it's not a top voting issue. Well, I think that that might change. We are two blocks from the seawall here as we speak here in San Francisco. Um, this is my neighborhood, and we just passed a big ballot measure in order to shore up the seawall. So we're, we're, it's a little more top of mind for us here. But I think that for people, sometimes an issue is so big that you feel powerless. And so what it, it's our job as activists to say, what are the concrete steps that I can take in my consumer choices, in my in my uh, voting choices, and if I'm given an option to uh, think globally and and act locally, will I be empowered to do that? And and California, I think, has had uh, because of our relationship to uh, the coast, we we fought offshore oil drilling, so we're now fighting that again with Trump. So I think for a lot of people, it feels like Groundhog Day because a lot of the issues that we grew up fighting in the 80s and 90s, we're fighting again now, hopefully with a little more wisdom and a little more coalition building. Uh, Ryan Costello, your district doesn't touch on, your former district doesn't touch on the sea. It's the suburbs of Philadelphia and some rural areas. How is climate affecting the people you used to represent in Congress? A hotter months of the year, hotter years, uh, uh, more extreme. I mean, we had a tor tornado watch last week. So what you're, what you're finding, whether you're in Pennsylvania, whether you're in Kansas, whether you're in Oregon, wherever you are, you're seeing uh, more extreme weather patterns. So instead of a hurricane, uh, Two, you're getting a hurricane four. Maybe I got that backwards. Um, and and no, but what right. I think, right. what, I'm I an think <laughs> what, what I think to, to pick up um, uh, the conversation is that in every single community in this country, you are able to identify a few changes to the detriment of all as a consequence of a changing climate. If you're along the coast, rising sea levels threats to literally your infrastructure and your homes. If you're in the Midwest, uh, what you can, the land that you can grow on has shrunk. Your, 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 your crop season has shrunk. Um, if you're in Oregon and in, in Northern California, the wildfires and on and on and on. And we discover that. And I think that this is really where the conversation has to go now. And in the, in the, in the next few years to come is what the cost of climate change truly is, because I don't think uh, that any one particular voter has a full appreciation for that on a macro level. They tend to focus it on a micro level, and then they ask the question, well, I know I have this little problem here, but how is carbon pricing, or how is this regulation, how's that going to fix my backyard. And I think that that's one of the challenges that we have in political discourse. Right. And Carlos Cabello will often talk about, oh, we can't ch do this uh, ch fix because it will cost too much. But people don't think about the cost of not fixing it. Right. right. We had Harvey, Maria, Irma, Midwest floods. Oh, yeah. Florence and the Carolinas. And I mean, we're up over a hundred billion dollars in damages for these things, not entirely caused by climate, but partly. So how do you address the cost of you know, versus the cost of inaction and the cost of action, because it's always the cost of action that seems to be too much. Right, and that's the challenge that in many ways this is still an invisible issue despite everything that Ryan has explained because, well, if there's a, a natural disaster, Congress just passes a supplemental bill and then that solves everything. Uh, but, you know, a lot of people don't realize we're, we're paying for that. I mean, that's, those are resources that we won't be able to use either today or in the future on education, on transportation, and all the other national priority. So I would spend a lot of time in my district just educating voters. And I think 
everyone in elected office needs to educate voters and, and those of us who care about this issue, activists as well, we need to spend time educating voters with the mindset that we're trying to convince them, not lecture them or shame them, because I think that's the most effective way to bring people to our side. And you think Democrats do that sometimes? Well, look, with all of these controversial issues, everyone has a choice, right? We can either exploit the issue for maximum political benefit or we can work towards solutions. And that doesn't mean you can't do both because obviously come campaign season, there are contrasts to be drawn. But I think especially after campaigns, we need to find ways to work together. And the truth is, of course, Republicans are responsible because for two decades they've just balked on the issue completely. But in some ways, I think Democrats and some liberal groups have been complicit because they've doubled down on this dynamic in our country where Republicans uh, don't want to be part of the solution, don't want to have a conversation, and Democrats want to own the issue entirely. We live in a country where the founding fathers established a government that's designed to work by consensus. That's why there was a meeting in the White House today to talk about infrastructure, because if uh, the White House and the Democratic leadership and the Republican leadership in Congress don't agree, nothing is going to happen. And what I think all of us have to decide is, if we're Democrats, do we want to wait for the day when we have uh, 65 Democratic senators, a big House majority, and a Democratic president? Are we going to wait for that day to hopefully have a chance to solve the challenge of climate change? Or are we going to try to win over some Republicans through sincere dialogue so that we can get a durable solution, if not today, in the near future? And what I tried to do during my four years in Congress is to try to build out that coalition from the middle out. Uh, I think we made a lot of progress. We went from having four or five Republicans in the House who were even willing to acknowledge uh, this issue to having 45 join the Climate Solutions Caucus, acknowledge that this is a real threat and that the government has a role in solving it. We're seeing uh, the fruits of all that work pay off today because you have leading Republicans today saying, oh no, this is a real issue. And our debate should be about solutions. Well, that's a lot better uh, than what we were, the discussion or the non-discussion or, or the absurd discussion we were having four or five years ago. And that's, that's the goal for me, to solve this. I don't care who gets the credit. Uh, no one should. Uh, but if, um, if we just double down on the politics of the day uh, where you know, this, this can only be an issue for Democrats, then uh, that's going to keep us farther and farther away from a solution. Christine Pelosi, does Carlos Curbelo deserve credit for creating a middle there, some, this growing this bipartisan group in Congress? Well, sure, everybody needs to join the conversation, and it's good that he did, and he brought 40 people with him. I think that if, from my perspective, again, I spend most of my time um, not only fighting Republicans, but fighting other Democrats. So I have a different... <laughs> Perhaps a different perspective because the way I look at it, it um, it's more regional and it has a lot more to do with um, a couple of things. One is the existential threat um, that, that climate change presents. And the other is uh, the dialogue in which people from poor communities, frontline communities, indigenous communities, um, uh, mining communities, industrial communities say, well, it may be true that uh, the ecology as we know it is going to change in a dozen years, but your change is going to change my family's economy right. in two years. And so even within the Democratic Party, you know, I had a big fight over trying to get oil money out of the party, trying to pass a Green New Deal a year ago. 
uh, in the DNC, and there were people who just, some people just want to take corporate money, and I couldn't stop them. So that was a piece of it. Other people said, um, we, don't, we don't want to have climate policy unless everybody is sitting down at the table together. And if you look at the fight yesterday, Eric Garcetti, the mayor of Los Angeles, was signing a Green New Deal uh, inside City Hall of Los Angeles and outside labor unions were yelling at him, um, concerned that it was going to, the new jobs that were going to be created were not going to be for them. So I think that in every time you're trying to convince somebody to make a change, it comes down to two things. First of all, they, they, they don't like their current situation and, but they're menaced by what change looks like. So you have to build the trust that they're actually going to get there. And I think that beyond partisanship, what we need to do regionally and within industrial and indigenous communities in particular is have that basic dialogue where someone is saying, your industry is poisoning my water. And the other person says, okay, but I need a job. What job am I going to get if I'm not in the industry that happens to have runoffs that poison your water? And that's the human to human dialogue, I think is going to transcend the partisan dialogue very quickly. Ryan Costello, tell us about the, uh, the plan, the, the Baker Schultz plan that, that you're advocating for. That is a very centrist plan. Tell us about what that vision is and, and who's supporting it. You put a price on carbon pollution, on the emissions. Uh, that price would escalate over time depending upon how much emission reduction you get year upon year. You have this, the revenue generated by that price goes back to the American taxpayer. The average family of four would get somewhere between $1,500, $2,000. And so the, the cost of some of, of energy while it goes up is offset by what goes back to uh, the American family. There would likely be some uh, winding that down for upper income Americans so they wouldn't enjoy that, that revenue. The next piece of it would be regulatory simplification. So if we're going to price carbon, we're not going to further regulate it. And then the final piece of it, uh, and I'm being really uh, simplistic, um, is you, you're seeing a lot of uh, litigation against uh, carbon-emitting energy companies. Those, uh, those fraud suits would still be able to proceed, but the negligent suits would not. So um, price, uh, dividend, regulatory simplification, and liability indemnification from negligent suits. So is that liability shield letting the fossil fuel companies off the hook for knowing that their burning of their product uh, created climate change? Uh, Sounds a little well, bit like tobacco. I, I mean, it would depend upon how one would like to characterize that. I would say, number one, I think it's a very, uh, it's a very specious legal argument to begin with. Number two, um, if you want energy companies to deploy more capital into R&D, into carbon scrubbing into the next generation of technology, be it carbon capture or whatever the case may be, for those that are still um, emitting carbon dioxide, then the answer would be yes. It would, it would put a halt to those negligence lawsuits, to the extent that a negligence lawsuit would ever even be able to proceed anyway, because if you think about it, who owns the energy company's shareholders? Who's been, who's been um, damaged? All of us. And so we're all going to pay in theory, who would pay who anyway? 
Right, so there's a, uh, New York and Massachusetts are pursuing some companies for sort of not disclosing their, their carbon risk to shareholders. Christine Pelosi, the essence of that what proposal, put a price on carbon, have it rise over time, give some uh, protection. Some, that, is that a, how's that sound to you as a deal? Narrow it, regulations, sounds like a deal. Well, I think there's a couple of issues that we have to consider. First of all, what is, um, when you talked about the return on investment is it is it going back into uh, the companies or is it going back to the to the to the rate payers to the, to the rate payers? Yeah. That that would have back. to be that dividend would have to be very um, closely examined so that it wasn't regressive. Second of all, we we do debate uh, you know quite a lot uh, you know a carbon tax versus a, a carbon fee. I used to be forget the income tax and just you know tax what you burn and not what you earn. Um, others have said, well, that sounds an awful lot like pay to pollute. So do you put a a cap on the amount of pollution that a company would be allowed to emit, not just pay them, not that they'd have to pay for it, but they'd actually have to stop doing it. And third, how quickly could you get them to um, investing in healthier alternatives? Because really it comes down to right. public health. And, and part of what Carlos was saying earlier, when there's a natural disaster and we talk about rebuilding, we're talking about that with the fires now. Can't we rebuild in a different way? Our, our firefighters are getting together and they're dealing with the insurance companies, but also the people and the utilities and saying, when you rebuild, you have to rebuild in a specific way. So if some of that dividend was going into rebuilding in places where you had uh, calamities, I think that, and again, frontline communities could be assured that they were going to get a piece of that. Then I think that I think that that would be, you know, a deal that they would be able to engage in. Carlos Corbello, you introduced a bill to repeal the federal gas tax and uh, put a carbon tax. So tell us about your policy vision that you have. You, you spent a year. So I hope uh, Mr. Trump, Ms. Pelosi, Mr. Schumer are watching because they <laughs> they talked about this ambitious infrastructure program today and the carbon pricing bill that uh, we filed last Congress uh, would dedicate about a trillion dollars in revenues to infrastructure. And I really think the only way you get meaningful infrastructure investment in our country is if you price carbon these days. I don't think any other type of um, tax is, is viable. Uh, so uh, the design of, uh, of that legislation was uh, we uh, started pricing carbon at $24 per metric ton. It would go up by $2 plus uh, inflation every year. Uh, that included a border adjustment tax, which is a critical component of any carbon pricing legislation. Why? Because this solution has to be a global solution. If the U.S. goes to zero carbon emissions tomorrow and the rest of the world does nothing, we've really achieved very little, maybe right. bought ourselves some time. But uh, that's not really what we're trying to do here. We're trying to solve a problem. What border adjustments do is they don't trust the rest of the world to follow us in pricing carbon, they really kind of force the rest of the world to follow us because everyone wants to access our market. And if they want to access our market, they're going to have to price carbon or pay a very heavy tax at the border that will make their products here uh, non-competitive at all. Uh, and then uh, trillion dollars infrastructure, about 50 billion of that was reserved for coastal communities like San Francisco, like Miami, because we face unique challenges. Um, and we also had a rolling moratorium of EPA regulations on um, emissions uh, for stationary sources. So not, not 
cars and vehicles, but uh, mainly power plants. Now, that moratorium would only continue as long as the reductions goals were being met. And by the way, this legislation, according to modeling produced by uh, Columbia University's Center on Global Energy Policy, would have beat um, the goals of the Paris Agreement. So this is the type of uh, a solution that I think is um, could be attractive uh, for bipartisan support. Another thing we did uh, was uh, give dividends to the um, uh, lowest quintile of income earners, so uh, the American households that were most challenged would be better off as a result of this legislation, as a result um, of the dividend. And um, yeah, that's pretty much what it was. And again, I think that if we're serious about uh, renewing our country's infrastructure, which I think a lot of Republicans and Democrats agree, thinking back at 2016, if there was one issue uh, that Clinton and Trump agreed on, it was infrastructure investment. Carbon pricing is the only way you get the revenues to do it. So the Climate Solutions Caucus, uh, 21 of the Republicans did not return from 18 to 19. 13 of them lost. So, you know, that's that caucus that you built has been Pretty well damaged now. No new Democrats can join. Republicans can join. So is all the wind out of the sails of that? You kind of built this coalition, and now a, a lot of them got blown out in the midterms. Well, uh, certainly a lot of Republicans retired, and others uh, were, were defeated in 2018. But uh, the ones that remain, I think there are 23 Republicans still uh, in the caucus, are recruiting new members. And although it's... Um, an option to abandon the Noah's Ark rule, uh, I don't think we should do it. Uh, the Noah's Ark rule, for those who have no idea what I'm talking about and are uh, thinking you know, back thousands of years ago, it just means that uh, to join the caucus, uh, if you were a Republican, you needed to find a Democrat who would join with. If you were a Democrat, you needed to find a Republican. And let me tell you, I think that was the best thing we did because that sparked hundreds of casual conversations between Republicans and Democrats about this issue. Now, of course, some, a lot of the people wouldn't join, but they were kind of forced to have a dialogue to explain to their colleagues why they would join or not join. And, and of course, many of them ended up joining. And again, I, it, it's, you know, we all put our jerseys on uh, come a campaign season, but I think if we are going to address uh, these big challenges, climate change, I think, being the greatest one our country faces. We need to have these conversations. We need to create healthy political environments where these solutions can get done. Christine Pelosi, is a bipartisan deal less likely now that there's fewer Carlos Corbellos and Ryan Costellos to do deals with in Congress? Well, in the House, it's still possible. It all depends on Trump. I mean, when you have the president, you have the president's signature. So the question is, is he going to make a deal or not? If he decides, If he decides on a number, then you can make a deal. Um, we'll find out when they return in a couple of weeks with their with their numbers. But that was always the question during the campaign was was uh, the presidential campaign when Trump said he wanted to do infrastructure. He was a builder. People thought, OK, well, he's built things before. He has a commitment to this. And even though he has seemed to side with some of the climate deniers when he did his golf courses, he certainly were built, was building them to spec um, on coastline. So they didn't sink. So he he was taking climate uh, into account when it came to his own, you know, personal uh, investments in Mar-a-Lago, in Bassmister, in, in Scotland, and other places. So I think that uh, the answer is it depends on whether or not the president wants to sign the bill. If the president wants to sign the bill, there's a deal to be made. If he doesn't, 
then there won't. So it really, uh, unfortunately, it comes down not to how many Carlos Cabellos there are, but how many uh, signatures there are in the White House. And that's well, but, but I think it's both, Christine, because uh, at the end of the day, you need the votes in Congress. And uh, this is a president who's unpredictable, and uh, a lot of days that's bad, but in some ways that could be good. I think that if Congress showed that they could produce an agreement on climate that would fund some other priority of the president's like uh, infrastructure, uh, then something could happen. Uh, during the two years uh, that I served and, and uh, uh, Trump was president, uh, a lot of uh, bills would emerge from the Congress and then the president would say, OK, well, yeah, I'll, I'll sign that. So the unpredictability is is generally not a good thing in my view. But uh, in this sense, I think it could work in our favor. I want to harken back to there was uh, Waxman Markey passed the bill uh, passed through Congress almost exactly 10 years ago. And this was uh, back in the day when uh, Nancy Pelosi and Newt Gingrich sat on a couch together. Remember, there was like there was bi some bipartisan support. And I just want to uh, call out there were eight Republicans who voted for Waxman Markey. And when they voted for that bipartisan deal, Carlos Cabello, Rush Limbaugh was outraged. He said they had ties to Wall Street. They should be sent packing. And some of them lost. So there can be real pain for people who cross that aisle to do a deal. So what does that say about doing that now? At the end of the day, people have to lead. And people have to care more about the country than about their reelection. So I don't feel sorry for people who are worried about what Rush Limbaugh or Rachel Maddow or Sean Hannity or anyone else says. If you are an elected leader of this country, you have a fiduciary responsibility to your constituents and to the country and to no one else. So, yeah, uh, perhaps uh, leading on climate uh, could make some Republicans vulnerable in a primary. Perhaps negotiating with Republicans could make some Democrats vulnerable in a primary. Too bad. That's what you signed up for, and we need you to do your job. That, that's the approach uh, that I tried to take every single day. I know Ryan did, too. I, I certainly wasn't perfect in Congress, and I made, my, my, I made mistakes. But every day, I was just willing to do whatever uh, was best for my community and the country. And anyone who's not doing that uh, shouldn't be in, uh, in Congress. Ryan Costello. Um Will your group provide political cover and even financing for Republicans who want to take some risks on climate? You have a centrist plan backed by ExxonMobil and Walmart and the elders of the Republican Party, but people are going to be afraid of primary challenges. Will your group give them some political cover? Yeah, that's cover? the objective. The objective is to, is to bo do both legislative advocacy um, in furtherance of informing uh, voters on what is in the bill as well as back-end uh, political support through a super PAC that has not yet been created yet. I just want to pick up on one thing that um, Carlos said there, and he's absolutely correct. You see this on, on the left, you see this on the right, uh, but I think particularly amongst Republicans on issues of climate, on gun safety and immigration, um, if you're not willing to take on your party a little bit, you're not going to be able to push this stuff out into the middle where you can get some consensus. And I do think in 2018, for as much as it was a referendum on the president in a lot of Republican districts, you do have to demonstrate that you're trying to find some consensus. And I think the American public is there on all three of those issues. There's no reason why we shouldn't have been able to get an immigration deal done over the summer. There's no reason why we shouldn't have universal background checks. And there's no reason why, even if you're not, we're not ready to do carbon pricing, that on streamlining, uh, 
um, some of the energy permits um, and uh, taking the ARPA-E and some clean energy technology and pushing and accelerating that innovation. Those are things that I think 80 to 90 percent of the country can all agree with. And particularly on the Republican side, um, we are not going to be able to move forward, I think, in a meaningful way where the center of the country looks at us and says, I have my issues with the Republican Party or I'm a supporter of the Republican Party, but they're out there laying out uh, bold ideas and they're willing to take the heat. And if we're going to be scared of what they're saying on talk radio or after 9 p.m. on Fox, then we are going to be victims um, uh, of our base. And I think that that's a really bad place for any political party to be. The Democrats have their own set of challenges, but I always think that each political party should be looking within themselves and identifying how they have to change and spend a little less time saying what's wrong with, if you're a Republican saying what's wrong with the Democrats or if you're a Democrat saying what's wrong with the Republicans. Let each party kind of wrestle that out themselves. Yeah, and l let me just add quickly, I, th the bottom line is that everyone has to make a contribution here. We know that it, we need a federal solution. All these, all these uh, uh, reforms at the state and local level are important. They make a difference. But in order to solve this, we need a federal solution. And we know it has to be bipartisan. That means Republicans has, have to do their part. That means a lot of environmental groups who for two decades have become accustomed to just reflexively opposing someone because they have an R next to their name, they have to rethink their strategy too. And if there are Republicans who are working toward those bipartisan solutions in Congress, they may have to hold back a little or even, or even consider supporting Republicans who are trying to get us closer uh, to the bipartisan solution that we need. So we kind of all have to hold each other accountable uh, if we're going to get this done. We're talking about climate politics at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. My guests are Carlos Cabello, former Republican member of Congress from Florida, Ryan Costello, former Republican member of Congress from Pennsylvania, and Christine Pelosi, executive committee woman the Democratic National Committee. Going to go to our lightning round. Uh, true or false, Christine Pelosi, the Green New Deal is so lofty that it will inevitably disappoint many Democrats. <laughs> We've been Green New Dealing <laughs> since we had Big Green here in 1990. We aim big and then we, and, and even though the initiative might you fail, you, can, right? you get what you can and you keep pushing up the hill. So, so eventually we will have a Green New Deal. Eventually we will address um, the issues of environmental racism. Even if we have to take a Notre Dame sign and put it over Puerto Rico, we will get help for the island. So More eventually we are going to um, pass That's a the long Green May New Deal. Okay. Um, true or false, Carlos Curbelo, history will harshly judge the Republican Party for obstructing progress on climate climate change. If, if they don't act soon, true. True or false, Ryan Costello, a national deal on pricing carbon pollution must be bipartisan to be successful and sustainable. That's true. Christine Pelosi, a national deal on pricing carbon pollution must be bipartisan to be successful and sustainable. True. Carlos Cabello, that is less likely now that moderate Republicans like you have been voted out of Congress. False. <laughs> um, <laughs> Christine Pelosi, true or false, coal state Democrats have obstructed climate progress just as much as some Republicans. Just as much. <laughs> Almost. You gave her an out. You gave her an out. Coal state Democrats and 
Democrats here in California are very concerned about the lifeblood of their communities and they are trying to find a just transition. And we need to help them get there sooner and faster. Christine Pelosi, true or false, the Democratic Party should hold a presidential primary debate focused entirely on climate causes and solutions. 100%. 100% true. True or false, true, um, you know a person who could be a fabulous moderator for that debate. <laughs> <laughs> We all do. It could be you. There you go. <laughs> Last one. Carlos Curbelo, who's a scarier political enforcer, Paul Ryan or Nancy Pelosi? <laughs> I don't, I don't want to sound disrespectful. Um, it's okay. We know. But I'll, I'll just say Paul's a really nice guy. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's give them a round for getting through the lightning round. <laughs> Let's talk about high-speed rail. Christine Pelosi, you know, the uh, Recovery Act, the Stimulus Act in 2008 had a lot of money for high-speed rail. Florida rejected it. California took it. The cost soared. And rejected it. Uh, and a new governor came in and put, you know, put the brakes on high-speed rail in California. If we can't get high-speed rail done in one state and pay for it, how is a Green New Deal going to be possible across the country? Well, when... High-speed rail was initially approved. There were a number of us activists who said, don't turn this over to the consultancy. Let the staff scientists at Caltrain who do this kind of work do the actual study. So I think part of it was that there was a lot of money that was spent um, by people who didn't necessarily know the territory. And uh, you have um, members of Congress who were in the state legislature then, like Mark Desaulnier, who would constantly say, what are you doing with the money? Why, isn't, why aren't the people closest to the project having the input that they should? So I think that anytime you're talking about doing a project, and I do think that we should link up major population centers with high-speed rail um, because that is going to be the future, um, but it isn't a matter of it it, it didn't work the first round in California. It can't work anywhere. It's more a question of why did it fail here? It failed here in part because the solutions weren't being built by the, the affected communities. They were being imposed by consultants that the, a lot of the activists and the indigenous communities didn't want and didn't trust. So between having a more diverse workforce that gets involved in that. We haven't mentioned Me Too Science, but I will. I just did, making sure that women are also at that table. I think you will have a Green New Deal when you have the people most affected by the policies actually getting to make them. Ryan Costello, should government be involved? Or you think that a lot of this infrastructure should be privatized, which is kind of what where Trump wants to go, is you know have private companies build this, build so the infrastructure. I, I don't think that our infrastructure should be privatized. I do think that the transportation sector is the most difficult to decarbonize, but that the two most important elements in the next 20 years are going to be electric electric vehicles. You, we think that by 2040, one-third of all vehicles sold will be EV. Actually, one-half of all vehicles may be EV. One-third of all vehicles on the road may be EV. Uh, we also have to look at uh, battery storage technology um, and also the infrastructure related to what is needed in order to charge. Um, and there might be some um, ancillary technology will make that will make that a lot easier to do. Uh, you know, think of uh, Waymo, and now you're going to know exactly where the next charging station is. That's that to me. That is where our focus should be. If we're going to in, invest public dollars, I believe it should be on the automobile side. I think a public transit project needs to stand on its own two legs. You already see a per passenger subsidy in, in most 
um, public uh, uh, passenger rail in the country. Not all, but most. And so before we start doing new passenger rail projects, I do think that we have to get our uh, automobile side of that. Uh, but aren't, aren't roads also heavily subsidized? There's a lot of, uh, I mean, particularly oh, sure. that, you know, the, the gasoline tax hasn't, hasn't, uh, haven't, hasn't been raised in a long time, which is why our roads are falling apart. You know, people, everyone says Amtrak subsidized. Well, my car is subsidized. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you're, and if you're driving an EV, uh, you're, you're entirely, you're not paying for anything to be on the roadway. I, I am. Mean, thank you. It's yes. very difficult for me to think. <laughs> you're welcome. It's very difficult for me to think that we can fund our infrastructure needs 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now if we are not going per mile traveled. It just, I mean, otherwise you're going to use non-correlated funding in order to fund your infrastructure. And if folks want to do that, you're going to end up with some really bizarre year-end spending schemes in order to make that happen. So pay as you go. Pay, I, th- pay I don't per see mile. That's the most intuitive, logical, correlated way to deal with your infrastructure needs. Let's look quickly at 2020 before we go to uh, audience questions. Uh, Carlos Covello, Beto O'Rourke recently announced his ambitious uh, climate plan. Day one agenda, $5 trillion over 10 years, net zero by 2050, defending communities. How do you see climate playing out in the 2020 election? It's going to be the first election where it's a major issue. And we can thank I don't support it, but we can thank the Green New Deal for that. It has sparked a national debate. It has elevated the issue. For Republicans, I'll tell you, from my perspective, it's been wonderful. Number one, I know Republicans always need something to oppose, and and this (laughs) certainly meets that, right? It's a big target. But Republicans are saying, yeah, we're against the Green New Deal. It's horrible, all the things they say. And then they're being asked, what are you for? And a lot of Republicans are starting to realize they need to be for something. And many of them are starting to formulate uh, those solutions. We have Lamar Alexander going to the floor calling for a Manhattan Project-type initiative for climate. That's wonderful. We have Greg Walden, ranking Republican on energy and commerce, saying, oh, no, climate change is real, and we Republicans need to proffer solutions, and they're starting to work on solutions. We have Matt Gates, probably the biggest Trumper in Congress, filing a resolution, calling it the Green Real Deal, and encouraging Republicans to sign on and to uh, take a leadership role in all of this. So... The Green New Deal has elevated this issue uh, for 2020. I think any serious presidential candidate, all presidential candidates are going to have to have an answer, a plan. And that just means that we're closer to a solution. So I'm uh, I'm optimistic. Christine Pelosi, I know you can't. You have to be uh, neutral on, on the candidates after the, uh, the DNC put the thumb on the scales last time. But, the, the, you know, how, how do you see climate playing out in, in 2020? Well, it's always been a top issue for Democrats going back to when Bill Clinton and Al Gore were running for re-election, M2E2, Medicare, Medicaid, Environment, Education. That was the, you know, that was 1996. So it, the environment has always been a part of um, the platform of the Democratic Party. Um, what Speaker Pelosi calls the green ideal will be what we end up putting in our platform. We already had a very aggressive platform in 2016 that talked about reducing emissions, uh, protecting the environment, environmental, uh, promoting environmental health and uh, fighting and banning some of the most uh, poisonous toxins in our air, in our water and in our food. So I think that the candidates are really going to be looking at that. I also think that right now there's a big fight about gender going on. You know, can we nominate a woman president? 
again, uh, you know, our voters going to be ready for that. I think that um, I, I think they are. I think we will. I will predict that we'll have a woman on the ticket somewhere. Um, and I would also predict that that Donald Trump will do a plot twist and dump um, Pence for a woman. Ooh. So that's my that's my prediction. So you'll see you have a woman on each side. And I think that also um, when you're talking about putting a mom on the ticket, you're also talking about the kitchen table issues of of the green ideal. So it's it's uh, what's in the food, what's in the water. Is it you know are we ever going to get clean water in places like Flint? Um, what is the what is the damage being done in terms of pollution? What are the choices that I can make as a consumer, and how does that Im how does that impact the cost of prescription drugs, the cost of healthcare, the cost of of ads asthma medicine? So I think the combination of of, of an infrastructure deal, a woman on each ticket, and uh, these kitchen table issues will make sure that this will be a prime environmental health and economic issue in 2020 and, I, and so I let me just point to what I think are the dangers on each side I, I have found the president's tweets mocking climate change to be not only misguided but I do think it's dangerous because it is a shout out to the base that it is acceptable to deny and to mock and I, I that is just wrong um, and I think it's a real yeah. challenge it's a real it's a real challenge if you are a Republican. I mean, I just have to emphasize, I'm in a, I was in a very purple suburban district. It's okay for me to talk about climate and have independents and moderate Republicans and some Democrats say, good for you, Ryan, pat me on the back. If you are in, in an R30 district and you're going there and you have a primary, then you are going to face some serious heat. And the president doing that is not helping you out. He's he's inhibiting your ability to to lean in on the issue. That's the danger on the Republican side. The danger on the Democratic side, if I could be so frank and Beto, I served with him. We were on Veterans Affairs together. I like him. He's, I consider him he's a friend. Um, Democrats get themselves in trouble when they put really huge price tags on things. Right. And and so if it was me. I would focus much more on what the dollars are going to be spent on and why we need to spend them on this program or on this. And if we don't do it, here's what the subsequent risk and additional cost will be is. And as a consequence, if Democrats go too far and nominate someone that is outside the mainstream on climate, wants to spend too much money or it's just too grandiose in terms of the rhetoric, I think the American public is going to look at that and say, well, we got one way far over here and we got one way far over here. I know climate's a problem, but, you know, I'm not really signing up for what either of them are saying. I think we all have to try and push our respective parties into the middle, mindful of your earlier question, which is if you want it to be sustainable and durable, it has to be bipartisan. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Congressman Curbelo, you mentioned the Market Choice Act, which you introduced last summer with two other Republicans. It had a uh, section providing for assistance to displaced workers in the energy sector. It was a carbon tax bill, uh, anticipating some job loss. Do you think that most Republicans in Congress <clears throat> would support including transition assistance uh, in a climate bill uh, that would anticipate some job loss. Certainly, and a lot of these individuals are, are, are coal miners, are, are people who work in the coal industry. And yeah, I think uh, one of the mistakes that uh, Secretary Clinton made in 2016 was, I, I think, a comment during a debate or an interview where she said, yeah, we're just gonna shut down 
uh, all those coal mines. That, that, that approach just doesn't work. I mean, you need to be sensitive when someone has a job, this is the way they provide for their family. You can't just say you're going to shut them down. You need to show them that they're going to be okay. Not, and not even, by the way, that, well, we're going to retrain you and find something else for you to do. That's a very, um, that's kind of an arrogant way to approach people. You, you, the way we did it in our bill, we, we would take, we would have taken care of those um, coal miners uh, and their families for life if they wanted to. Now, of course, for, for people want to continue working and find other things to do, there would be assistance for that as well. But you got to kind of put yourself in the position of someone who's maybe 56 years old and you say, oh, yeah, don't worry, we're going we're gonna to train you so you can do something else. If we're trying to build a coalition and we're trying to get people to follow us, that's not a, a good approach. So we did want to make sure uh, that we meaningfully uh, help those who would be uh, aggrieved by a transition and help you know, American households that, that would be hurt by an increase in consumer and energy prices. Next, next question, welcome. Good evening. Could you uh, discuss just briefly how we can redirect the fossil fuels subsidies to green energy? <laughs> Ryan Costello. Well, you know, it, it, the question is ultimately what subsidies are we talking about? Um, and I've not really been fully clear on what subsidies. I mean, we, we know what the, the wind and solar subsidies are. Some of what people call the subsidies on the oil and gas side is depreciation. Um, where I think that we need to head is actual investment dollars. And we shouldn't just use ARPA-E, but we should actually expand that um, and listen to the venture capital community and the scientists and the engineers for what, where they need dollars in order to make the technology more commercially viable. I think in a carbon pricing world, you need no subsidies. Well, that's you don't true, need too. an electric vehicle tax credit. You don't need subsidies for wind, solar, and especially not for the fossil fuel industry. But, but on the transition to getting there, and I think that's really where we're at. For example, in California, we have SB uh, 100, which is a law that passed that talked about getting to a renewable energy standard very quickly. And there already you already see communities trying to do carve-outs and say, well, can we invest right. in irrigation rather than in hydro and solar? And answer is no. You have, it's good to have irrigation districts, but you have to do the investments in solar and hydro or we're not going to get there. And I think the other element, too, is looking at the corporate tax structure and saying how much of a corporate tax cut do you want to give um, a large uh, polluter versus um, money that you could be putting directly into the public health infrastructure, into public works. And if you're going to have a green ideal, what you're going to need is, again, you're going to have to have racial and economic equity, and we're not there yet. So part of that transition has to look like redirecting some of those Trumpian tax cuts back into working class communities. Let's wrap up with one thing that gives you hope. Uh, if you look out the future, that the science is dark. Uh, Ryan Costello, what's one thing that gives you a lot of hope? Uh, the amount of uh, capital and the amount of innovation that is happening in the negative emissions, uh, carbon capture and carb carbon, what are we calling it? I called it carbon sucking last week. It's something else. <laughs> Direct air capture. Direct air capture. <laughs> a lot's happening there. Christine Pelosi, quickly, one thing that gives you big hope. My 10-year-old daughter, Bella, and her friends who, since they were in kindergarten, uh, cared about pollution, cared about the environment. I think this next generation is incredibly insistent. They're very media savvy, and they are going to be absolutely insistent that their parents uh, 
work on a cure. So that's on us guys. Carlos Cabello. Well, for one, gatherings like this one, where people who uh, ha come from different places and uh, belong to different parties and have different ideas about what the role of government should be in our society are having a dialogue, are finding areas where we agree, where, where citizens are coming to make a difference. This gives me a lot of hope. But I think if we take a step back and we look at every factor that's influencing this discussion about climate change, all of them are moving us in the right direction. Younger voters uh, that are uh, making a greater share of the electorate who care about this issue, as Christine said. Uh, the media is beginning to cover this in a, in a truly a meaningful way. Uh, I was on a Meet the Press show at the end of last year. The full hour was dedicated to climate change. First time a Sunday morning show dedicates uh, the whole show to the issue. Uh, you have Republicans in Congress feeling the pressure, understanding that they have to be a part of the solution. So every single factor that influences this uh, issue is pushing us toward a solution. And I believe that we're closer than we've ever been today and getting even closer uh, each day. So I'm very hopeful. been listening to Climate One. We've been talking with two Republicans and a Democrat about working towards bipartisan climate solutions. Carlos Curbelo is a former Republican congressman from Florida and co-founder of the Bipartisan Climate Solutions Caucus. My other guests were Ryan Costello, former Republican congressman from Pennsylvania, who now heads up Americans for Carbon Dividends, and Christine Pelosi, executive committee woman for the Democratic National Committee. To hear all of our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. Let us know what you think by writing a review wherever you get your podcasts. And join us next time for another conversation about energy, the economy, and the environment. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner and Justin Norton. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich edit the show. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where the show is based. I'm Greg Dalton. Climate One is presented in association with KQED Public Radio.